Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. From the Webby Awards, I'm David Michelle Davies. This is the Webby Podcast. Here's something new every day. The story is not over. Different strokes for different folks. Yeah, yeah. Hi, and welcome back. Taboo subjects, private worries, shameful memories. How do we address no-go topics in our private lives, and how does that inform our collective identity? My next guest, the formidable Anna Sale, host of the Webby-winning podcast Death, Sex, and Money, explores answers to that question in each episode by talking about, well, just that. Anna and I talked everything death, sex, and money, from how conversations around Anthony Weiner's sexting scandal inspired the podcast, to how listeners confront death or crippling debt, to how our political beliefs influence the way we confront these issues. After talking with Anna, it became really clear why she's good at her job. Her straightforwardness approach and emotional introspection is at once disarming and authentic. Uh, I grew up in Charleston, West Virginia, the capital city, um, and I my my dad was a doctor and my mom was a physical therapist, and I grew up in a family of five daughters, so talking was something I, talking about personal things was something I learned how to do uh, very early on in my family, um, and I sort of think of my... Uh, the way my early life shaped my journalistic outlook as like um, I, I went from West Virginia to Stanford uh, in the early 2000s, which felt like a really big culture shift. And then I went back to West Virginia uh, to start my public radio career. That's where I started in journalism. So I, I think of my sort of journalistic interest as really being about kind of exploring how I feel like I've moved between really different cultural environments um, and kind of trying to understand the parts of places that I connect to, the parts of places that I have felt alienated from, and to use that kind of personal outlook to just go deep with that kind of question for everyone I talk to. Where is a moment that you felt really comfortable and seen? Where was a place that you felt misunderstood? And because I think that emotion animates so much about uh, who we choose to be with in our relationships, how we identify politically, um, where we feel like we belong, who we feel like we are aligned against, et cetera, et cetera. And did having two parents who were both in the world of medicine, did that, you know, sort of shape your or lend you to be able to talk about more difficult subjects or just to sort of have a more pragmatic way of talking about things? I think so. Like I, when I think about my parents, they they definitely have a kind of clinical lens on life. It's like, you know, we're all going to die, 
so you know, this person died. That's what happens at the end of life. Um, I remember conversations about sex were very straightforward um, and kind of <laughs> mechanical. They weren't about like intimacy and emotions. They were just sort of like, this is how sex works. Um, so I think both kind of a straightforwardness I get from my parents and then the kind of like, but how did that make you feel uh, is something that I did not have conversations about with my parents. Yeah, I mean, I think probably for most people, the conversations around sex as a young person were just, you know, just big generalization here, but mostly just really awkward, right? I think that at least personally, as a young child, it was a very awkward conversation. And to have like an example of somebody who was not awkward was probably like a really different experience than, than I would imagine most people had. Yeah, I I think of my parents. My dad actually is who told my sister and I about how, what how babies got made, and we were little, and it was just a very sort of like, it's time you know this. And he told us in the course of like a bedtime story, he would tell us these bedtime stories. And one night, the parents who always showed up in the recurring bedtime story decided to have another kid, and that's how <laughs> we found out about sex. <laughs> um, and I remember I was young enough that I was just like. What are you talking about? Um, but I think back on that, and it's just like, I don't know. I find it so, I just love it because it, it was a parenting choice that they were going to tell their girls how sex worked and they were going to be the ones to do it and they were just going to sort of get the information out on the table. Can you talk a little bit about yeah. your experience going to California um, and going to school there and, and, and sort of like how different that was and, and how that yeah. shaped your perspective? Yeah, I I think about this a lot because I, you know, I I was the kid of a doctor. Like, I did not want for much when I was a kid. Um, And so, uh, like, it's very strange to me that I had, I went to Stanford and I arrived and I remember being just totally shocked by the, it was 1999, the fall of 1999, my freshman year. Um, So pre- pre-first crash, so it just felt like money was flying off of trees. People were quitting Stanford to, like, launch their startups and get their IPOs in the queue. And I showed up and didn't even know what an IPO was, and I was like, "What? who are these people? Um, and I, it was really jarring to feel like I had moved from a place that, like, in West Virginia, the story of, of where you're from is all about kind of you are from a place where prosperity does not exist. Right. Um, to be a West Virginian is to feel like you have um, constantly needing to defend yourself against the idea that the rest of the country or the rest of the world has about West Virginians. And mm-hmm. it's a very kind of uh, collective identity, um, a collective chip on our shoulder um, and a pride around that. And then to go to a place where that was just like, it was just everybody's just trying to get in line to get to get the money that they they can earn. It was kind of like, whoa, this is it just felt like I was going from a kind of, I don't know, just very bluntly a, a place where there was more of a collective identity to a very like individualistic um, identity. And there was a lot I got from my time at Stanford. I learned about like, oh, I get to have entrepreneurial ideas and and feel like there's possibility, like that there's something about being from West Virginia where you are sort of ingrained with this sense of um, limits. Uh, So I feel so grateful that I was got to be around that spirit. Um, But I also there's part of it that I felt I feel like I'm still responding to that sense of like, oh, my God, how do we create sense of community and and um, I don't know, collective identity in the midst of us all? seeking our own individual pursuits. I mean, that time at Stanford is also, like, particularly unique. 
I mean, Stanford's a unique place anyway, but that's also like a really, really specific time. Uh, you have like Google probably, I want to say a, a year or two before is called Backrub is coming out of Stanford and you have all this money being invested in the web and the internet. And it's, it's like all this crazy spending, but at the same time, very quickly after like it all blows up and nothing works and all these people say the internet's <laughs> stupid and it's like, right. It's a very strange time really. Yeah. It's like, is this real or is this not real? Um, and yeah, I mean, I was, it was like slightly pre-Facebook when I was at Stanford. I, I had a lot of friends who graduated and went straight to work for Google. Um, and I decided to go back to West Virginia and work for a nonprofit. I, I, you know, I made some questionable choices there, but um, like, yeah, it was an odd, it was just like kind of a, yeah, it was a weird time. It was a weird time. Tell me a little bit about the origin of Death, Sex, and Money. I think it's about three, four years old now. Yeah, we turned four in May. Um, I'd, I'd been a public radio reporter for a number of years. I'd covered kind of general assignment news and then become a focused political beat reporter. I'd covered a series of elections. And and I it was like late 2013, I'd covered the New York City mayor's race, which included the like implosion of Anthony Weiner. Um, and I was just a little, I felt a little bit like as much as political campaign coverage is supposed to be about talking to people about their lives and whether they feel things are going in a good direction or a bad direction, um, like that I was sort of talking around a lot of things and not getting into them. Uh, right. So so that's that's really where the impulse for death, sex, and money came from. And then the other impulse was that I was very unmoored in my personal life. I had uh, had a marriage end. I was divorced. I was living in New York City. I was not sure whether I was going to stay. I, you know, kind of all these questions about how I was going to support myself, what life looked like, whether I was going to be a parent, you know, what life is about, like all these huge, big questions. And I just wanted just more... I just wanted to connect with people about the things that I was thinking about. So so both the kind of like journalistic interest and the real personal need, they sort of combined into um, me pitching this show. And when I thought about the name of, I was like, how do I do an interview show where you sort of get at that stuff and you just make it explicit that you're not going to talk around things? Um, I was walking the dog and I thought about like, what are the things that we, you know, you talk about in worry about late at night and feel alone around what are the things that people talk about in eulogies about what were the real markers in their lives and it's you know it's always like who you know what your family looks like who who you've loved you know what kind of professional success you had or didn't have um and like how you made meaning in your life and and so i came (laughs) i thought of death sex and money and i just thought it was really funny to just like have a show that was just that kind of blunt about like this is what we're talking about on this show we're talking about death sex and money um and so that's where the idea came from what one thing that really strikes me is that you know even then and before with the web these topics are at least there's a lot more information about them today than say there was 20 years ago right like you could google things about sex and about death and For financial sure. and all that yeah. kind of stuff. but all the information and again generalization but a lot of the information is very like factual and straightforward and it um it's super informative but the thing that was missing and that what you guys do and i think largely what podcasts do 
is that it's a lot more intimate and it's this place mm-hmm. that exists on the internet that's like not about 100 280 characters or small posts or quick information or fast or speed it's actually this place that's like slow yeah um, and where you talk and that's um have you do you feel like when people are come on to the show that it's like they finally have a chance to breathe and like get into these things in a more real way i was immediately struck when I started doing interviews for this show about like the openness that people brought to our interviews. I mean, whether some, you know, people who weren't public, but also famous people. Um, and I think there's something, there's something about framing a conversation. I, at the beginning of, of interviews, I say like our show is called death, sex and money. I'm going to ask you personal things. Um, it's, it's not to be like gratuitous or provocative. It's because the show is all about that. These are things all of us engage with in different ways. So it's about trying to make maybe a listener who might be going through a similar thing feel less isolated. So it's about when your mission is to say, I'm going to share this place of vulnerability because it might create connection. Um, there's different, you know, there's a different sort of attitude towards openness. It's like, oh, this is about <sighs> exhaling, you know. Yeah. Um, and then the other thing is just how rare it is for someone to just feel really listened to um, for an extended period of time. You know, I think that's that's a, a tool that I have or just a, a – a, like people don't just sit down with their friends and say, wait, tell me about that time in your life. And then what happened? What was it like? You know, uh, people really like the feeling of feeling heard and listened to. The thing that, that like I am excited about then also worries me is that, especially with your show, when you listen to it, there's so much great – revelatory information that's shared and it's like so intimate and then the great thing is is that you don't have like necessarily like and I mean this in a positive way there's like not necessarily like clickbait headlines being written about the conversation you know the next day it's like there's for some reason it seems like it exists below the you know sort of the regular media narrative that's out there and it's like for people who want to dip into it but it's not like people are coming in and being like you know so and so said this and like starting a big Trolly, yeah, yeah, haters. Exactly. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's I. It's very interesting to me that I. I feel like our. Maybe it's a function of just podcasts being such an opt-in medium. Like you have to choose to press play to hear our conversations. So, um, I think that that has a lot to do with how people engage. Then when they talk about it online, um, you know, we don't we don't have a lot of you know trolls or people get being bullied based on what they have said or didn't say or it's a very sort of supportive listening community even when there's things that people disagree on really deeply um so i i I find that really interesting because we do we live on the internet we are only a product of the internet but it doesn't feel like the sort of um dark sides of the internet have have penetrated into our into our community Tell, so you brought up listeners. <laughs> I know I was saying yeah. the same thing. I was like, "Don't don't let anybody hear this." Um, you brought up listeners. Tell me about how you incorporate listeners because I think it is really kind of unique and different. Um, how you bring yeah. listeners into the show? Yeah, I mean, this was sort of like I didn't really know this was going to happen when we started the show. I thought, "Oh, we'll do these interviews. We'll put these out." Um, but what I didn't anticipate was like. When, a, when someone hears a story about something that hits on a, a moment that they've experienced in their life, like people go to their email and they send us an email that says, I heard this and it reminded me of this story. And, and these very sort of personal, 
confessional stories immediately started showing up in our inbox as soon as the show started. Um, and that's just grown since the show's gone on. And I think it, what we what we realized was like, oh, my gosh, this is a goldmine of content. This is a goldmine of story ideas and um, ways to show the audience like um, – it's diversity to to um, show that if you share something, like we're going to unpack it together. Um, and so we started asking these really open questions to our listeners to generate what we what we kind of call internally listener episodes. We'll do these episodes where we just ask a really broad question, and then we stitch together and quilt together different stories from dis- different listeners. Um, we did one on cheating. Like we said, have you ever cheated on someone or been cheated on? Tell us your stories. And we got a ton of stories back, like really rich, textured, vulnerable stories. And then we put them together into this like really cool collage of, you know, from various points of view of people who've been involved in relationships where infidelity happened. And then we did one last year about student loans. We just asked like, What's a how have student loans affected other life decisions in your life? And we just like it was as if like this huge portion of our audience had been waiting for someone to ask about their monthly student loan payment because it's such a private kind of shameful thing that has huge consequences for, you know, your ability to save, your ability to sort of vision um, what life could be like when you don't have that payment. Um, It's about opportunity. It's about like inequality. Um, And so that episode led to this huge kind of outpouring. We got thousands and thousands of student loan stories of people saying, this is how much my balance is. This is how I'm dealing with it. This is how I'm not dealing with it. Um, And I think it, and I've heard from a lot of people that like, because we said, just just talk about student loans, like that it helped people who were in relationships where one of them had debt and one of them didn't, like just to kind of open up that conversation because um, it normalized it. What was surprising to you about the world of student loans that you hadn't thought of before you started the the research? You know that like people have student loans and they pay their student loans. Um, but I really... Having conversation after conversation, it was it really hit me like this is an experience where you, you know, you you sign each semester to get your loan check. um, And and then all of a sudden when you're out of school, whether it's grad school or undergrad, like you start getting these bills and and there's there's not like someone to say at any point, like, this is what you're signing up for and this is what your monthly payment is going to be when you become an English major and or, um, and this is how it's going to change the way you're going to need to budget. Um, and, and so it's like a very solitary, private, shamey thing mm-hmm. um, when, like, at, more and more people are taking out more and more student debt um, to finance higher ed because of the costs of higher ed. Um, and it And it, like spiraled out into all these stories about like someone whose engagement broke up because her fiance couldn't deal with the prospect of her student debt. Um, You know, people's ability to feel like the American dream is in a grasp, like other people telling stories about completely changing the way they spend in ways that they never thought they'd have to if they had a graduate degree. But like what changed when they really you know, looked at the way interest was accruing and how they were going to try to pay it off. So Mm. it it seemed like it was going to be these kind of like mundane money stories, like who wants to hear someone talk about their student loan payment? But they're these deep human stories um, 
that that kind of weren't being told anywhere else. I mean, one thing that I took away from it was just the realization. I don't even know if it was that explicit, but I just sort of realized I had never really thought of student loans and the fact that they were available, which seemed like a great thing, right? Whenever you hear like politicians saying they want to increase student loans, that always sounds like a good thing. But then actually kind of realizing that the fact that these loans were available and abundant sort of on some level contributes to the cost of higher education, right? That, and it's not, it's not like a direct thing or something, but that the fact that a lot of people can get these loans also necessarily is not helping the cost of higher education come down, let's say. Yeah. I mean, it's like, it's sort of like everyone experiences their student loans on an individual level and it, and like, there's not a lot of storytelling that's pulling it back to connect to the structure. So I think for a lot of listeners, just realizing it wasn't like, it wasn't just them making poor choices or making mistakes that got them into this financial trouble, that there's a lot structurally that's involved. Yeah. Um, and, and then, you know, we did also try to link that to like, so how do you deal with it? Like, this is still debt that you've got to deal with. So, so doing sort of a structural analysis along with like, let's be real, like this debt matters. You can't just, you know, throw away your 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 debt statements when they come in the mail. When you're covering stories like that, do you feel a sense of like wanting to like solve it for them kind of thing? Or you know what I mean? Like that you hear all this and if you gather all the information, maybe you could like have the way to to fix it? Sure. Oh my God. I so want to be able to say like, wish I could like take that away, take that burden away. But, yeah. um, uh, but I, in some way, like it's, this it sounds like so, I just did a series of follow-up interviews this week with with people who I talked to a year ago and it was really cool to hear how like transformative it was for people just to like talk openly about their debt like it didn't make it go away but it like helped them kind of like the, the sort of like crushing burden that they didn't want to look directly at like that shifted so you know a number of them had reconsolidated their loans or figured out other ways to deal with it or it just had a sort of more like this is something I'm dealing with and it's part of life. Like it didn't have that heaviness that I heard from so many people last year. So, mm. um, in that way, like that's, that's like what I, the deep, deep mission of the show is yeah. like, how do we like, just by openness and like swapping stories together, like help lift that burden of like, of isolation that can kind of lead to so much suffering. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. 
I mean, another another topic that you've covered and that, you know, we find really, really interesting just because, you know, we're at the Webby Awards and sort of it's a very internet related topic is the topic of porn. And it's something you've covered. I knew you were going to say porn. You've I covered was like, please. A bunch. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. you know, it's just it the it's, you know, and your stories really bring this to life and just in, in general as well is that things have really, really changed in this realm, right? And, you know, like not too long ago, if children were going to, if you just look at kids in porn or youth in porn, you know, it was reasonably complicated for, you know, kids 15 or 20 years ago to be interacting with this. Maybe they had to go to a store and use a fake ID to get a magazine or get somebody's, you know, from their parent. I don't know. There's a lot of obstacles. And now young people are walking around with like, porn machines in their pocket to some extent right yeah. I'm exaggerating but like they literally have access unless their parents put on these controls to to porn like all the time anywhere they are um and, you know and I, i've asked like my, my brother has older kids and i have younger kids so it's something i thought a lot about but you know i've asked him like what do you th- like what are you what are you doing about this and it, it definitely seems like it doesn't seem that discussed it's discussed on your show a lot what have you learned about what's going on in in this world i think of it two ways like our we did an episode all about porn stories and and that i think two things came out of it which was like you know the the immediate available access of porn can be a problem it can cause distancing and we heard from plenty of people who for whom it had become a problem in their relationships or you know a source of betrayal or you know all these things um and then also heard from people who like for whom it was a porn really helped them figure out like what they were into and helped them Hmm. connect with desire and in a safe space and explore without judgment um and so i wanted to bring out both of those things like i think both of those things are true about internet porn um and and then the other thing that I've sort of we're doing a series about dating this summer and porn this is kind of a weird transition from porn to online dating but but I having conversation with some younger listeners you really sort of get this sense of um kind of like this different spectrum around online dating and tender into things like feeling more comfortable with like camming or like seeking arrangement into sex work. Like there's something interesting and very different happening for, for some young people who are coming of age now where there's a, there's like a different set of values forming around like, if this is something I'm choosing to, you know, do on Tinder, like what's the difference between me shifting into camming and getting paid for showing off more of my body? Mm-hmm. Um, we just did an episode with a young woman who making a lot of money through seeking arrangement and um, primarily Can you those explain seeking arrangement just for people? Oh yeah, seeking arrangement is a, it's a so-called sugar daddy, sugar baby site. So it's uh it's about matching primarily young women with uh, older men who have money, and um, it's not explicit in how Seeking Arrangement advertises itself, but it's for some portion of its users, it, it functions as kind of a sex work site. And I was just sort of like, I, with that interview, I was just like, tell me everything about how this works. Like, tell me about the conversations you have. Like, how do you negotiate rates? Tell me when you move from texting to, like, conversation. Tell me, like, how this has affected your intimate relationships with people you're not, you know, having these financial relationships with. Like, um if you Google sugar baby, sugar daddy, like there's all these YouTube sites and um, different blogs about like how to do it and what you get out of it and how you should dress for a sugar daddy date and all these things. But like there's not a it sort of hasn't moved out of that 
corner of the internet. Yeah. Um, and so I wanted to explore that with just like really open, curious questions. How are you seeing the values? Are you seeing a, a, genera- a generational change in values and beliefs and ideals around something like that? Does that seem like something that's widespread or specific to people who are, you know, uh, I don't, you know, I it? can't, yeah, I can't speak to the scale of it. Um, I think what I did find was interesting was like this young woman I talked to, like for her, she felt like she had really learned how to have really explicit conversations about consent, really explicit conversations about like what she wanted out of an interaction and what the, her partner wanted out of an interaction. Um, and in a way that, she, you know, she sort of saw it as like we sex work and seeking arrangement had pushed her to be more fluent in these things than people who haven't engaged with sex work have had to be. And like the Me Too movement is like forcing everybody to catch up with that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I have, I have a two-year-old daughter, so I'm listening to partially as like someone who came of age sexually, you know, not during the seeking arrangement age and thinking about, oh my God, this is so different. Thinking about like, how do I feel about this as a mother of a young young girl? Like, yeah. like I, I just want to just like explore the range of feelings that come up and not come up with a conclusion about like, this is a good thing right. or this is a bad thing. Yeah. I mean, I, it seems like you're already going, I mean, you're already going into it with a very like, let's see what's, what's happening here perspective. Um, yeah, it's like is this this is happening, so let's talk about it. Like like if you come into it with an attitude of like, "Ugh, this is like really bad and needs to be shut down." Like you're not going to understand what's happening in that corner of the internet. Like I sort of want to understand it first. There's so many corners of the internet like that. I mean, they're not yeah. specifically <laughs> like that one exactly, but this overall like there's behavior that's different and it's new and there's people who are experts at it and they're sharing i mean it's it's like literally some of it's like you know people who are it's literally infinite what's going on out there i was thinking about this last one that you covered i don't want to be too on the nose the death thing i think is really interesting it's a helpful framing device yeah Yeah. (laughs) but it's really interesting because again it's just relating to personal experience right which is these other these two other topics feel like something that there's been a lot of new information and people are much more comfortable talking about and you're having these really great discussions around it the death one, though, I still feel like I meet people all the time, myself included, who, like, have forgotten that they're going to die. Mm-hmm. Like, people don't yeah. seem to be more aware today that they're going to die than they were before. And it's yeah. not that that's the only topic around death, like being aware that you're going to die, obviously. But talk to me a bit about how you look at death and think about death and what interests you about talking about it. Yeah. Um, I have this feeling, and and I don't think it's true for everyone, but I have had the experience in my life where I grew up in a community where I was just in multi-generational spaces much more often than I am now in my adult life. Like, and I think that that speaks to what you were just saying, like the fact that like death actually feels much more remote now to me than it did to me as a kid when I was going to like funerals of neighbors or, you know, people's grandparents or... yeah older people at church. I think what's what's challenging about that is that like when you are more remote from people who are dying or dealing with illness, like you are less equipped to grapple with that reality which is going to come for all of us. Um so I you know, it's our conversations about death on the show have been about, you know, people who have gone through profound grief uh, at, at different stages of life and what that's like, like like Katie Couric talking about losing her husband to cancer when she had two little kids and a 
you know, new job hosting the Today Show um, was a different experience than like a young woman who lost her husband um, in her 20s and trying to figure out how do you rebuild when you thought you had found your partner for the rest of your life. Yeah. Um, uh, and then, you know, someone who's dealt with cancer and had sort of a long goodbye. You know, there's the the range of stories about death. I feel like that what you hear most is you hear, you see on the Internet, like, mass shooting footage. You see police violence footage. You see the sort of, you know, in-your-face graphic violence. This is a dead body of someone who used to be alive. And then you have a sort of conversation, like the cancer memoir thing, um, like... How do you deal with losing your brother um, and knowing that his body was laying in the, you know, as an example, like laying in the street for hours? Like, how do you move on from that? Like, what I find interesting about conversations about death is like, just like, how do we talk about that experience of grief, of reckoning with death, of um, like what we're able to sort of grapple with by talking about it out loud and what you can't get around, which is that you're going to lose people you love and you're going to die. Um, so I don't actually think it's the hardest thing to talk about, though. I feel like if someone if because often you you talk about death with someone who's had an experience with death mm-hmm. and they want to talk about it. It's money that's a lot harder to get people to open up about. Uh, but like, certainly, like if you are healthy and you are, you know, death feels very remote. Like, no one wants to talk about it. But in interviews, the people who have stories about death are people who've like encountered it. And then there's also the whole part of how some people are aware they're going to die, are more aware, and it drives a lot of their decision making, or it drives a lot of their motivations, also. Yeah. Incentives. Yeah. I mean, I certainly like th- think it's a handy thing to remember when I get really like attached to stability and, you know, don't want to take risks. It's like, come on, Anna. <laughs> remember, <laughs> there's something else going on. Stakes. Yeah, fair point. Yeah. So these topics are like really, really important to like life in America, you know, and I think that we could have mm-hmm. we could talk for hours and hours as you do on your show about any any of them. And you know, discover just more and more little worlds and ways that it affects the way people live together. Ultimately, you know, what we see going on in, at least in this country, in the United States today, is that like, you know, if you read, if you watch the news, you watch political news, it feels like people are having a hard time living together, whether that's sort Mm -hmm. of true and, you know, day-to-day life is a different topic. And so it just seemed like you have a really, you would have a really great perspective as somebody who also was a political reporter and now has so much firsthand information about so many of these issues of like, you know, and not necessarily from a political perspective, but did the election of Donald Trump, did that surprise you? Um, yes, it did. I, I think it surprised me because as a political reporter, I was also trained to like follow polls. So I, yeah. so I, I, I not expect him to win. But in 2012, I, I traveled all around the country and talked to swing state voters and tried to get a sense of what was driving their worldviews and, um, and thinking back on those conversations, uh, like totally, I I can see the beginnings of what led to the 2016, or what were what were some of the factors in the who knows what, mm-hmm. what what all the factors are. But I remember talking to voters in 2012 who felt profoundly alienated uh, from the power center in Washington, and that was I think a, a combination of like 
the long overhang from the financial crisis, you know, the huge structural changes in our economy and the middle class because of how the economy has changed and globalization. Um, and I think that like those factors combined with like, who are you going to blame? You're going to blame the person who doesn't look like you. Uh, and, and so um, an increasing sort of uh, willingness to be open about racism and xenophobia. And I heard all of those things in 2012. Like hmm. in, in 2012, it was a lot of like, you know, I you know, focus on Obama, the racist stuff, you know, and, and yeah. you know, tons of voters certain that he was a Muslim who was had come from the outside to destroy America. Um, but but like all of that stuff is not did not just like show up in 2015 or and, and was not just created by the way Donald Trump shaped his messaging like he was responding to something. Right. Um, and, and so like what I think about is like. How do you have conversations about the sources of that alienation um, and talk across difference um, while also, like, trying to figure out, like, okay, what are the values that we can agree on and what can't we agree on? And and I think that that's, like, a really deep identity thing happening in the country is like, what are our shared values? What are things that we can't agree on? Like, what is the vision for the country? Um, And I think that we talk around that all the time by the way we respond to the news and who we hang out with in real life and who we hang out with on the internet. Um, But like, you know, I, I sort of think of it like, if if you can kind of have that conversation by changing the entry point so it's not like are you you know were you a trump supporter or were you not a trump supporter like tell me why and yeah. more about like what's happened in your family like how did your family work when your grandparents were growing up and how does it work now um and i, I think about it a lot and i find it hard cuz i think always as a host of our show is like, what are our values as a show? What are the stories that we're going to kind of lend an earnest open ear to? What are the stories that we're not going to because they're hateful? Um, It's it's like something that we're thinking about all the time. Like, where do you draw lines and where do you try to create connection? Well, one of the the episodes on your show that I don't know why really sort of resonated and made me think about this kind of in a different way was, um, and it's really unrelated in a way, but it was this episode you had, I think it was called I Was a Father Until I Wasn't. It was about a young man who had uh, had a a child uh, with a woman sort of like on a one night stand and found out about it. And then, you know, he was a, he comes across as this very like upstanding great guy who like stepped up and said that, you know, he would take care of it and did all the right things. And then sort of a year into the into a year into it after he's like the father of the daughter and really taking care of her and sharing custody it turns out that he's actually not the father and there's mm-hmm. this other guy who enters the who comes into the picture who turns out to be the real father and i just remember thinking as i was listening to that that like is there anything more difficult than this i mean i i mean maybe it's just as a man trying to relate to this or something but it was so complex and like these these two men it seemed like from, from your story, like they figured it out. Yeah. And I just remember thinking like, if these guys can figure this thing out, are all these other things really that big, big a deal, you know? I, there's this moment, um, 
I, this, I just got a little teary thinking about it. There's a moment when the father who turns out he wasn't the biological father is like, talks about moving the crib out of his house into this new guy's truck. Like they moved the crib together. Um, as custody was changing. And I remember saying, I remember saying to him, like, what did you do after? Did you hug? Like, what, what did you do? And he's like, uh, we just shook hands and he drove off. Like it was just this, like, like such an intense moment. The fact that they could like just carry the large furniture together out into the pickup, like, whoa. Um, and so you, I love that episode. Were you surprised that these two guys figured it out and got along or, you know, like, does it seem like, you know, sort of taking a step back that this would have been, they came from different places and really hard, or is it, you know, was it, were you like, okay, it makes sense that these guys figure this out? I don't know. I was like, I I could not believe the level of emotionals just sort of like showing upness they both summoned. And it was because they both loved this little girl and they were like, this is a terrible situation and we've got to figure out a way to, to make this as easy as it can be. Um, and, and so it was like kind of a co-parenting story in a way, like, you know, they weren't like super emo sensitive guys. So they weren't the kind, you know, you just didn't, they didn't go to therapy and talk about it. Like they just like figured out how to, not that there's anything wrong with that. I love therapy, but like, that was not the personality profile, um, of how these guys dealt with this together. Um, and, and so I, yeah, I loved that story. I was just like, oh, these are, these are two guys just figuring out how to problem solve and how to like take care of something bigger than themselves. Uh, I think in this, in these times it, it, in all times it's, but it was super inspiring. And Estelle, I want to thank you for joining us on the Webby podcast. It's been great talking to you. I know I speak for everyone in the office at the Webby's that we're all so excited that, you know, that Death, Sex and Money won a Webby. We hope to see you here in New York uh, for the show in a couple of weeks. Um, but thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much to Anna for joining us here on the podcast. Death, Sex, and Money is such a great show. It really pulls back the curtains on topics we might not feel comfortable discussing and how we think about those things. I encourage you to check out the episodes we talked about, like When Daddy Dates Pay the Bills on Sex Work, and more at wnycstudios.org slash shows slash death, sex, money. And you can follow Anna at Anna Sale, that's at A-N-N-A-S-A-L-E, on Twitter. She's got a good Twitter feed. Our producer is Sebastian Ade. Our editorial director is Nicole Ferraro. Research and writing by Jordana Jarrett. Music is Poddington Bear. Claire Graves is a single-size classic Twix bar. Thank you so much for listening. We will be back here with you next week.